Hi, everyone. Just a reminder that this show is not legal advice, trading advice, financial advice, or personal advice. Enjoy the show, and thank you very much. This show is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. Do you know what's smart? Going to ZipRecruiter.com slash crypto. Yo, yo, welcome to Crypto 101, the average consumer's guide to cryptocurrency. This is Matthew Aaron. And in honor of Cybersecurity Month, the month of October, we started the month out with Ray Redacted in Security 101. And now we're back with Security State of the Union to understand if security has progressed in the past year. And for that, we have on the CTO of SageWise, Mr. Dan Rice. And Mr. Dan Rice has been on the show before. He gave us the episode of How Exchanges Work. And that was a little over a year ago. So we reached out to Dan to see if he would come back on and give us a progress report on security in the crypto space from software to hardware, from hardware wallets to exchanges and beyond. Are we making advances in security to make sure that we are safe when being our own bank? Before we get into that conversation, Please remember to go to Crypto101podcast.com. Follow us on our social medias there. Also, you can send us an email. Hit the contact button. Send an email. Say what's up. Give us suggestions, comments, or criticisms. All are welcome. Don't forget to think about supporting the show and become a patron when we have no ads in this show. They help the editing. They help support the servers and much more. We appreciate your patronage. And don't forget to subscribe. Leave us a comment and a rating on iTunes. It helps us Stay visible for everybody to find Crypto 101. And now, without further ado, let's see if we are safer now than a year ago. Mr. Dan Rice, CTO, co-founder of SageWise. Welcome back to Crypto 101, sir. Super awesome to be here. I had a great time last time. And actually, when you hit me up again, I thought, oh, you're so popular. I thought I would have to hit you up if I wanted to come back on. But I was I was happy that you dropped me a line. It's like, perfect. I think it's been almost a year since the last time I was on the podcast. So it's a happy time for me to be back. Man, it has been almost a year. Actually, the last episode that we did was How Exchanges Work. Great episode. Still one of the most popular episodes ever on Crypto 101. And dude, you've been up to a lot this year. You and Amy have been rebranded from Bootstrap Legal to Sagewise. All kinds of things going on in your business. Can you just catch us up over the last year, what you've been doing? Well, yeah, we changed the name from Bootstrap Legal to Sagewise. Uh, We've expanded the team quite a bit since then. We also announced the close of our $1.25 million round a couple of months ago. So that's an equity round, and that's something we're very excited about. So um, we just announced our first product. It's called BlockySign, which is kind of an electronic signature product. And uh, yeah, I mean, expect a lot of cool things coming in the future that we can't talk about yet. (laughs) (laughs) Cool, cool, cool. I hope that you come back on and talk about them. What is an electronic signature app that you're doing? What does that mean? So basically, we're just trying to build what I would consider to be a tool for signing documents. One of the things that we see in the smart contract space is, when are you actually signing a smart contract? And that kind of led us back to where are people at in general in the electronic revolution? And generally, people are just learning about online signatures. And blockchain is the best way to store immutable records for electronic signatures. So you could think of our tool as a competitor to Adobe Sign or DocuSign. It's called BlockuSign, like I said. So. Yeah. Wow, that's dope, man. Really cool. Really cool. And what about you? I see Amy posting all over Facebook. I follow her on Facebook. She just had a baby. She's flying from here, flying to there, you know, working out with a new family and advocating for a sage wise. And what about you, man? What are you doing behind the scenes over there? 
I think, yeah, that's a good term for it. The main thing that I have to work on is the technology side. We've hired three engineers since the last time I was here. So managing that team, we're starting to pump products out and work on just uh, traction for our company. And we just really believe that if blockchain technology takes off, most people won't really have to know that they're using blockchain technology. So we're trying to build very usable tools in general, and that's keeping us busy. Right on, man. Anyway, congratulations on your fundraising, $1.25 million for SageWise. You know, I just really appreciate and respect companies that pound the pavement, go out there, raise money the old-fashioned way, don't do an ICO and raise $250 million for some bullshit. Congratulations, even though I do hope you get that $250 million one day. (laughs) Right on. Thank you. I appreciate that. I I think in general, there's no problem with raising more money, but I was in a company once where – I think the money didn't help because it didn't give us the urgency to build something that people felt was usable and important. So I think we have a good amount of money to build something useful and important to people. That's an interesting thought. Like you have too much money where it didn't give you the motivation that you need to make that next push, make that next step. No urgency, yeah. Which is, you know, here's an obscure question that I just want to ask is you guys raised $1.25 million and you said, hey, we can get it done. We're going to do this app for signatures. We're going to do these other things that are coming out. What do you say to these people that raised $50 million to make an app? <laughs> I, I Honestly, I think do anything you can to stay hungry and, and worry about user traction. One of the questions I was asking the other day on Twitter was, how many companies that raise a lot of money through an ICO do you know of are actually focusing on user experience right now? Have you heard? You know, and I think the number is pretty small, so that's concerning to me. That's a very good segue, actually, of what we're going to be talking about is user experience. What we want to talk about today is the state of the union of crypto security and being your own bank. And this all comes down to user experience. First, we have these different terms that we've covered on Crypto 101 many times. Software wallets, hardware wallets, device wallets, paper wallets, brain wallets. We're going to go into those quick 101 on those. But what we really want to talk about today is if the security is progressing from the last time we talked and if people are ready to be their own bank. And also, you brought up a couple things that we really want to touch on when it comes to exchanges and liability and risk and incentives for exchanges and incentives for the whole crypto space in general. Let's get into it 101 on what are the different ways to store your currency? Okay. Wallets, let's go through really quickly because I know you covered this on other podcasts probably. Number one, you got the mobile wallets, which are really popular now, and there's various mobile wallets you can use to store your cryptocurrency. There are paper wallets, which are wallets that you can print out and store under your house or whatever. But once it's offline and printed, there's no way someone can hack in and get that because it's not on your computer. There's local just on your computer wallets like Bitcoin Core software, for example, is the main wallet for Bitcoin. There's also hardware wallets, which are really popular now. And those ones are little key devices that connect to your computer. And what it does for you is even if your computer's hacked, your cryptocurrency won't get stolen because you have to confirm everything that you do, sending money or anything on the little screen there. And then the last one that I brought up was brain wallets, which is something that's not really in fashion now. But the idea is that you can actually store a string of words in your mind. And if you recall those, then it can actually be a Bitcoin address. And there are tools out there that will let you generate one of these. And once it's in your head, that's the only place it is, maybe. Maybe you never wrote it down. And the cool part about that is you literally have money in your head. And you can take it with you anywhere. And no one else can know that you have that unless they you know, somehow force you to tell them what it is or do a brain scan somehow. Technology we don't have yet. So it's safe in there. But the bad part is you can get hit on the head and forget it or whatever. So that's why it's not that popular anymore. But it's a cool concept. 
You told me about a story about your friend just the other day. You went to see him at a house, and he had his Ledger Nano. He forgot his PIN code, and then what did you do with the mnemonic phrase? So, he, yeah, he forgot his PIN code, and then on top of that, we got out his recovery key, went to put it in, and actually one of the words that he had written down didn't exist in the Ledger Nano list of words dictionary, oh, and we man. were just stuck. And so it's funny. We're just so human in a way that we can make these kind of mistakes. And what we actually did is I got the complete dictionary of any word possible, and we looked through it, and I thought maybe he switched one word with another that was similar, and sure enough, a similar word was in there. We punched it in, and it worked. So, And the funny thing is when you set up the ledger, you actually have to proofread your list. They make you do this. And he kept saying while we were doing that, I know I wrote it down right because I triple-checked it. But he did not write it down correctly. And thankfully, that word that he wrote down was not in there because it led us to the fact that something was wrong. If that word had been in the dictionary, we would have not known which word was wrong. But thankfully, because it wasn't, we were tipped off that, okay, we just have to figure out this one word is wrong. We got to figure out what it is. So, yeah, man, that's scary, man. I That's like my nightmare. I wake up <laughs> at night, cold sweats, thinking... Did I write down my mnemonic phrase correctly? Because I have never had to restore my ledger yet. One day I will, and I know I'm just going to be sweating. I'm going to be sweating. Well, the thing is, it's like, actually, Ledger occasionally does this thing when you upgrade your ledger where it's like, hey, we're going to blow out your device, and you need to have your recovery key with you in order to like get your ledger set up again. It's like, are you kidding me? Right. You know, I mean, it's important <laughs> for security, but that's like... I feel like in some ways cryptocurrency is made by like aliens of the future, robots or something. And like this private key point is where humans have to interact with it. It's just not the best interaction, no, however man. that is, you know. It isn't. And so, so this goes back to there's human factors in everything. I don't think humans, I don't think people should be doing a lot of things that we do. We shouldn't be driving cars. I mean, 35 thousand people die every year in the United States alone by driving a car mostly from human error a lot from drunk driving just your emotions you know your texting whatever and so now we are saying hey be your own bank <laughs> red flags red flags but we're here to talk about the wallets the companies is it getting better so being your own bank software wallets are they better than a year ago Right. So software wallets, primarily, I think about wallets on your phone or your computer. I don't think a lot has changed security wise with those over the last year. They're pretty much how they were. I think it's all about users understanding how to use them and when to use them. And I think predominantly, at least the ones that are on Android or iOS, people have learned and been told, don't put all your cryptocurrency on there. Maybe just put a little bit that you want to be able to use day to day. So it's more about human behavior. When you think about how we interact with banks, that behavior has developed over a long period of time, you know, over 100 years kind of thing. Very good. Point. And so we don't think about much what we're doing because it's so standard to us. And maybe we're told by our, you know, parents how to do it or whatever. And it just works how it is because we've kind of reached all the human edges and those have all kind of been smooth with right. that. And we're still in that kind of space with this technology. So I think the mobile wallets we're learning, okay, don't put all your money on there, at least at this point. What about a hardware wallets? Are they better? Is your treasure, your ledger, or what have you, are they better than a year ago? Well, there has been some hardening over the last year. So there's been a few bugs that have come up where security researchers have hacked these devices and found that one of the scary things that could have happened from the firmware a year ago was that someone could have found your treasure or your ledger, uploaded a fake firmware into it, and then you go to use it. And guess what? When you typed in your PIN, it just stole it from you. 
because there was fake firmware in there. And they wow. some researchers produced some stuff like that, and both Trezor and Ledger were able to update their firmware so that it would check to make sure it was the real deal before it actually ran it, and it came from the correct source. So Ledger and Trezor are a little bit better security-wise, and I think, again, just humans understanding how to use it. Hey, this is a good place to store bigger amounts of my cryptocurrency. You know, a lot of these companies like MyCrypto and Ledger and all these things are doing dedicated desktop apps are those safer than say going through your browser yes so another thing that we've run into is that browsers people are conditioned to click through security warnings and ignore things that they shouldn't so we saw this big hack with my ether wallet which was actually talked about on the last episode basically what we're seeing is people want to get you into their own app because they want to control the whole experience that you're having and they can do their own security checks that they couldn't do inside the browser and make sure that you're not like spoofed to a fake site or something because you only have one MyCrypto app on your desktop. So when you click on that, it's not a fake version of MyCrypto. It's the real app, you know, hopefully, unless someone has broken your computer and installed a fake one. Basically, the security gets a little bit higher and they can warn you about anything they want to if they detect an issue. And also they can obfuscate a little bit what their code is. So that is an improvement. And we've discovered, we've theorized that things like my Ether wallet were not safe for a long time. And you know, there was this splintering between my crypto and my Ether wallet. They were the same source code at one point and they forked from each other. They both, I think, have realized that the web is a dangerous place and they probably need to move. So we're just learning things that we already knew were true, but it's forcing these companies to move that once they get hacked, this isn't a good model. We need to change what we're doing. It seems like the weak link of all of this stuff is the internet. Is there any options on the horizon that you can think of? Um, I can think of one that we had him on the show. His name was Mr. Chung Rong from Elastos. And they are making a new access to the internet where you're coded, where it's you. It's a new front door to the internet. What are some ideas to make the internet safer? Because I think if I'm not wrong, this is why we're not banking and doing our personal information and voting and stuff like that online because, well, we, we know that it can get hacked. We know that there's people doing man in the middles. We know that things that happened at my Ether wallet where they're you know, spoofing sites. What is the state of the evolution of the internet to make it safer? Right. Yeah, so I don't know what Elastos is doing in that regard in particular, but I think the main issue is when we talk about the internet, we're actually talking about browsers, right? And browsers are general purpose, and we kind of see the same thing happening in a lot of spaces. So over the last year, we've seen a number of big hacks related to phones, actually, and people being able to steal your two-factor authentication by switching a SIM card and getting your phone company to take control of your phone. In general, when you have a general purpose device like a phone or your email or your web browser, we're expecting those to have a really high level of security. But they were kind of designed for general purpose use. And there's always a trade-off between security and usability. And when they're general purpose like that, they may not have been designed to store all of your assets securely. So the cool part about these apps, and I think that's kind of the direction we need to go, is crypto-specific technology where you're going to store your vault for your keys and stuff like that. I actually think that the Ledger and the Trezor have shown to be the probably the best online tools relating to the web for protecting your private keys because they push the access back and they give you a very clear and simple display. In fact, Ledger also made some improvements in the last year to show you uh, the address that you're sending to on your device before that hadn't done that. And that was a big security issue because if your computer is hacked, it could show you the wrong address and you could hit send and it would go somewhere else. So in general, I think the hardware type devices, and we're also seeing secure enclaves being added to phone hardware to protect cryptocurrency better. 
But we're also seeing that there are some ways to break into secure enclaves in the current gen of technology, so I wouldn't trust it too much. And now a word from our sponsor, ZipRecruiter. There are job sites that send you tons of the wrong resumes to sort through. <laughs> That's not smart. You know what else is not smart? Making the lottery the centerpiece for your retirement plan. But you know what is smart? Going to ZipRecruiter.com crypto to hire the right person. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans through thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply so you can get qualified candidates fast. And that's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com crypto. That's ZipRecruiter.com crypto. ZipRecruiter.com slash crypto. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Now, back to the show. So you said crypto-specific tools for storing your cryptocurrency. And, well, my crypto and Ledger are moving into apps. Do you recommend that the exchanges move into apps as well? Binance, HitBTC, Bittrex, Cryptopia, should they all be doing their dedicated apps? And are exchanges safe still? Are they still the same as they were with Mt. Gox? Okay, so this is a great topic. And let's talk about Binance in particular, because I think it's probably the most used exchange in the world overall in volume of trading. They had some issues this year, specifically around Syscoin. There was some abnormalities with like trading where people were losing a whole bunch of money because of markets fluctuating and people were trading at weird prices. There was a hack involved. And then they started something called the Seifu, which was they're taking 10% of all their transaction fees and they're putting them into an account. So here's an interesting thing because Binance actually is not regulated by anyone in the United States, as far as I know. They're kind of floating out there. And you're asking yourself when you're using it, if something goes wrong with this, who am I going to call? And so they've actually come up with their own solution to try to solve that, which is we're going to keep our own fund. When things go catastrophically wrong, we're going to pay people out of this fund. So I think that's the real innovation there. So it's hard to say that Binance is more secure overall than it was a year ago, because as much as they probably fix some issues, there's also new developers that join the company or old ones that make you know mistakes. And suddenly there's new hacks available for hackers to break into a site like that. So the most important thing I look at is risk and liability beyond that. And when you look at that, you look at, oh, well, they have a fund that's going to pay me back if I lose money, supposedly. That actually means a lot because they've also incentivized themselves to create good security. They don't want to have to empty out that fund. And so they're very incentivized to make sure they don't have to. And eventually it'll get so big that I think they're going to say we're going to siphon some money out of here to use for other purposes because we don't think we need a billion dollars in this account or whatever, you know. So they have a lot of incentive to do the right thing there. And, and I think good incentives are important. You want to align incentives with those people that you're uh, transacting with. That's a very good point. Back to the original question. Do you think that they should go to the app route or they should keep in browsers? And to just add on to that so we don't have to waste too much time from me talking. This is why you're on the show. Coinbase. <laughs> Coinbase has the FDIC insurance. They are very incentivized. Just touch on them a little bit. Or have they made progressions to be safer, more secure, and more user-friendly? 
So I think the app thing is probably good for exchanges to go after because they have that same issue I'm describing where you can type in Binance and end up at a fake site or whatever. I can't think of any reason why they shouldn't make their own apps besides that there's a cost engineering wise for them to do that and to maintain it. And it's a big undertaking, but it also gives them more control. If you're using the Binance app and you decide you want to go use Coinbase, now you got to quit the Binance app and you got to go online and go to your browser and do it or whatever. So they create a more inertia there. And I think that's good for them as a business. But going to Coinbase, you know, they've worked really hard on their custodian services and all these exchanges, these closed source exchanges are black boxes. So I can't come out and say their security is better than it was a year ago overall. But you can look at the insurance policies they have, which I think they had a year ago, and you can look at their track record, obviously. But the biggest thing is, if you're a user on Coinbase, you can look at their insurance policies like the FDIC insurance that they have and also the hot wallet insurance. And you can know that you're going to be protected by that if issues arise to a certain degree. It's not perfect because they haven't insured all their cryptocurrency deposits, but they've insured the hot wallet part. And you'd hope that that means something. So I can't say if Coinbase security has gotten better, though. What about the uh, user experience? I mean, over the past year, we've seen a lot of UI changes, design changes, the rebranding, the GX to Coinbase Pro. I don't know why they did that. It's the same thing. And they have a lot of money. They're raising a lot of money. They have a lot of plans. They're really, you know, going straight into the government, you know, to become, you know, insured, compliant, KYC, AML, and all those, you know, buzzwords these days. And the SEC is kind of helping them out a little bit. They are the on-ramp for all things cryptocurrency for the United States and a couple other countries. So... I would say they are getting better. And that I guess that's what I mean. But then at the same time, and this might go down the philosophical road, they are now becoming a bank. They are not crypto. They're not the inspiration of getting into this. It's just another bank, but we call it Bitcoin now instead of USD. What's your thoughts? I don't necessarily think that user experience on software gets better. I think it does to a point naturally when you have a, you know, a certain objective that your company's after in a lot of cases. But I think their UX will get better and worse at different times. And they kind of have a monopoly in that everyone uses them. And I don't think that encourages them to improve their usability necessarily. I think they definitely don't want to lose people's funds, but they can get away with a lot of things because they're at the top of their game as far as branding and marketing goes and name recognition. True, true. Another thing about security I want to touch on is multi-sig. You mentioned multi-sig and smart contracts. Multi-sig is a very secure way to secure your funds, yet you said it does not work well with the Ethereum platform. Can you go into multi-sig, what is it first, and why doesn't it work with smart contracts? It does work well with smart contracts. Let me explain a little bit what I was saying. So multi-signature is the idea that if you're at missile command and you are about to launch the nukes, there are three keys for the nukes. And if you want to launch it, you need to turn at least two of the keys. And so there's three different people who have a key. Two of them have to show up and turn it. Otherwise, the nuke doesn't take off. So that's the same idea with cryptocurrency. If you have a wallet, you can have a multi-signature wallet where there's any number of keys. And they call it M of N. The idea being you need, say, three of five keys or two of three. You can set it up however you want. And from there, one of those, you know, however many keys you need are, are needed to unlock funds in that account. What I was bringing up is that multi-signature is generally considered a smart contract feature in that it takes special code. Even on Bitcoin, the way multi-signature is implemented it uses smart contract. It uses uh, scripting in the language. But in the case of Ethereum, there is nothing in the protocol that talks about multi-signature. They had this very light idea that if someone wanted to make 
multi-signature on Ethereum, they could create a smart contract to do that. So people did, and there's a company called Parity that was advertising themselves as having really top-notch security. There was Ethereum founders who founded Parity. And so what ended up happening is that multi-signature wallets got hacked because of problems with the way the smart contract was coded up. So the paradox of it is, here we had a situation where we had the most reliable and supposedly safest way to store cryptocurrency, which is this multi-signature. It ended up being the least safe because there was a bug in the smart contract. So that's something you have to consider when you're handling crypto. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details currency and interacting with smart contracts is you have to trust all the code in that smart contract as well. I'm really happy you brought up the smart contract and multi-sig. Okay, so we know what multi-sig is. You need two keys or inputs or codes or passwords to unlock a wallet. What are some of the vulnerabilities that smart contracts are having? You said it's a smart contract coding issue. Can you just go through a brief rundown of what's going on with smart contracts and security? Are they secure? Are they safe? If you say that a coding issue could just totally put a monkey wrench in the whole thing, that seems like a big problem. Right. So originally in Bitcoin, we talked about years ago, like, okay, you have to trust all the code that you're using. Because if there's a bug in this code, you could lose all your money and you can't call anyone to get your money back. So the first time I bought Bitcoin, I remember I spent about three hours reading through the source code of bitaddress.org paper wallet to make sure that I was- One would do, yes. That's what we all do. Yeah, yeah, to make sure that we were comfortable with everything that was there and how they were generating random numbers. And then I noticed they were using this random number generator function in the browser. And so I actually went and read the source code of the browser to see how they were generating these random numbers. So finally made myself comfortable that I can, okay, trust this is going to work okay. But in general, everyone can't do that. And so we have this problem and this paradox in cryptocurrency that less than 1% of the population knows how to code. But 
these smart contracts use code and we're trusting them and we're saying they're decentralized and that we're putting our funds into them and that kind of thing. And so if there's even a little bug in a smart contract and you've loaded funds into it, it could be instantly gone. And it's not like cryptocurrency where if you've got it offline, you're safe. Smart contracts exist out there in the blockchain, in the case of Ethereum, let's say. And so even while you're sleeping, someone can be reading your smart contract and trying to figure out how to steal funds from it. And there's been research institutes that have said, hey, we wrote some code and tested and we found there were like a whole bunch of wallets with money just available that we could steal sitting out there. So there were just all these opportunities for people to steal your funds. And even if you know how to code, I mean, you look at all the bugs that exist online, they're written by coders. And a lot of those code bases have been reviewed by other people, like the Bitcoin issue that just happened. Lots of people reviewed that code, but it was overlooked. So the problem is when one issue comes up with cryptocurrency, then it's too late and you can lose your funds at that point. You know, these undiscovered bugs that are lurking kind of thing. So what are some of the issues with smart contracts these days? What are some of the security issues? Do we have a list? I know that they can be tricked into executing or executing multiple times. Is that true? And if so, how does that work? And what are some other issues with smart contracts? So first of all, there's bugs. That's called reentrancy, what you just mentioned. They can be called multiple times. That happened like with the DAO, there was a reentrance hack. There's other issues like that that occur where there's just a way that you can trick the code into doing something that the programmer didn't think about who wrote it. I would say the biggest thing that I'm really concerned about with smart contracts right now is a lot of coders are realizing that these smart contracts might have bugs into them. And so they're actually doing something funny. There's something common on Ethereum called is owner inside of these uh, contracts. And what that means is the owner has created a function that says, I have special powers over this smart contract and I'm mm -hmm. the owner of it. And so if I call these functions, only I can call this function and it checks at the beginning, is this the owner I'm talking to? The hilarity of that is that these are supposed to be decentralized contracts. So we just saw this hack that happened on Bancor recently, which is on Ethereum. And they had this kind of owner concept where there were special privileges that they had over the contract. And people who are signing up to use the smart contract didn't even realize this was in there. Luckily, in their case, they only lost their own money. But somehow their smart contract got hacked and this owner function got used and a whole bunch of money got siphoned out of their contract. So... The biggest issue that I think we're seeing with smart contracts is they're written in a really irresponsible way where the programmer's like, hey, I need a backdoor into this. And so they code one in and then it's back to the single point of failure thing. If their computer gets hacked and their private keys get stolen, a lot of times someone can manipulate the whole smart contract. We've seen that with ICO tokens that have completely gotten exploited that way. I think that's been the most interesting types of hacks. There's always going to be human error, accidental bugs written in. But in these cases, these were intentional things that were added to these contracts. So why the back door? Is it put there by the developers, the coders to fix it? Or is it malicious? I, <laughs> Who I knows? guess unknowable, I guess, right? Like if I assume the best and most people are writing these, they're just thinking, hey, maybe even their boss said, can you leave a back door in there so we can make changes? In the case of Bancor, they intentionally wrote it in. In fact, I believe their terms of service even talked about the back door. But this whole mirage of this decentralized network kind of loses its luster when you start having these smart contracts being centralized around the company with special access reaching into it. That's interesting. Now, from the average consumer, from me, the average person, I bank with Chase. I have the Chase app. I use Chase online. This is what I bank with. Yeah, I guess I could say that. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bank with Chase. So does so does millions of other people. Anyway, what's the difference between the app that they use 
and their code and their browser opposed to all this shit that's happening in crypto and, and, and blockchain. Why is it so easy for the average consumer to trust and to deal with the traditional banking system? Yet it seems like every turn there's bullshit with crypto. Well, number one, I think Chase does have hacks, but they tend to happen where the best place to steal money from Chase is directly into the bank because they're holding everyone's assets there. The corollary in crypto would be like a, an exchange. And we do see hacks on exchanges all the time. And that's just such a great place to steal money from because there's so much money sitting there in a cryptocurrency exchange and different than a bank. There's ways to recall even like wire transfers and things like that. These banks are like working together in a way. And yeah, there's times where like there have been swift hacks and banks couldn't get money back that was stolen. But there's a lot more oversight. And there's a lot more slowness in the transactions in a way. And that slowness gives them time to realize something's going wrong. Whereas with cryptocurrency, a lot of it, we're always talking about how fast it can transfer and all that kind of stuff. And that's actually a bad thing in a lot of cases. So we have this new technology with this really fast transaction power and no way to recall transactions once they're on the network, that kind of thing. And so we end up having people lose money because they're trusting the new technology. And also there's a lot of liability that Chase puts on themselves. So if there's a problem with my mobile banking app, they kind of usually have liability for that and they're going to take care of it. Whereas if there's an issue with a cryptocurrency wallet on my phone and someone hacks in and steals my credentials through that and steals all my cryptocurrency, there's really nobody that I'm going to be able to call and talk to about that. And so basically the securities move to the edges. You're your own bank. You're responsible for all of it. Two questions before we get off security. My first question is, a year later, after talking, after working in the space, after building a company, after, you know, you built your own exchange back, I think you said 2014, 2013, do you still believe cryptocurrency as a currency, not as blockchain technology, but cryptocurrency is the future? Oh, yes. I am so bullish on the technology, but I think that for the issues we're describing, I think we all want it to happen really quickly. Uh, people are in the space. Oh, like, let's have this go mainstream. But I just have to do the check, like with my parents, like, and would I be comfortable giving my parents a cryptocurrency account? Or, you know, like, is it really mass adoption ready? And I have to be honest that it's not. There are so many things we haven't gotten worked out. So I think it's absolutely the future because there's things that are better. There's properties that are better about it. It's it's really self-sovereign money that we've never had before. What are those properties? List them down. Wrap out to us. Sure. Yeah. I mean, just the fact like start out with Bitcoin. I was blown away the first time I got into Bitcoin and realized that there's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoins. So suddenly there was something that governments always had control over, which was the money supply that suddenly with cryptocurrency, they don't have control over anymore. We've taken that on ourselves. We have control over that as a people together over these networks. And so we also don't have any man in the middle when we're doing transactions online. We lost that when we got banks online. We had to talk to our bank if we want to send someone money. Whereas with cash, I could always just give you cash. Now we have a way to send cash over the internet, basically. And no one else has to know that we're doing it. You know, There's even shielded transaction networks like Zcash and things like that, where you can do private transactions and no one even knows what you're doing, but you're sending cash instantly over the internet. That's amazing. You know, that never existed before. And all the other things that we can build on top of it that are going to happen. It's not just money. Money is just the first thing, but there's social networks. Imagine Facebook being disrupted by a company that does social networking over a blockchain system 
and you can control your privacy levels yourself or things like that. There's all kinds of cool stuff. Any chance you watch the TV show Ozark? No. Uh, I wish you did because I really want to go into this because let me just preface this a little bit. Ozark is about a guy who launders money. And through the whole thing, I'll say he had $8 million in the bank. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to go and take that $8 million out and move his family to the Ozarks. And so when he went to the bank, he said, I want to take my $8 million out. They said, you can't. And he said, why? Well, we don't have enough money, they said. So he said, you know, all kinds of, you know, legal mumbo jumbo. And, and they finally, reluctantly, after, you know, arguing with them, gave him the money. Fine. So then he had to take that money and move it to the Ozarks. So he, you know, hid it and he was his own bank because he hid his money in a boat. So with that, somebody stole his money. And then he went to the people who stole some of his money. It was not all of it, but let's say just half of it. And he said, well, what are you going to do with it? If you have cash and you want to buy something, the IRS is going to be all over you. You buy a car with cash, IRS is there. If you try to move the money, if you try to go do these things with this cash, if you put it in the bank, IRS is there. You're caught, you're busted. There's nothing you can do, which basically through the whole thing, because he's a money launderer, he's washing money for people who are doing illegal activities, or actually we don't really know what their job is, but he's moving money through different businesses to make sure that it's clean so people actually can use it. And this whole show is almost like a visual white paper for the use of cryptocurrency in the future of how much control banks, governments have over your funds and how almost impossible it is to do anything with liberty throughout society. Yet also at the same time, it is a great argument against Bitcoin and cryptocurrency because of what he's doing with it. You should watch the show and I recommend everybody to watch Ozarks. It's a good show, but it also shows the limitations and the problems with so much liberty with your money in a society. Sorry, it just went on a little tangent there. Um. <laughs> That's true, though. That's true. And that is the question. Is being your own bank actually better? I mean, when you think about it, we there was a time where everyone kind of was their own bank. And now we went to this banking system. And now we're kind of like saying maybe we should go back to being our own bank. And is that better? I don't know. Let's see. I, we will see. We will see. Into some general questions, sir, if that's okay. Yeah. I think we asked this last time you were on the show, but let's see if the answer changed because I doubt you remember what you answered. Who are some people that you respect, look up to, or follow in the crypto space? Definitely changed from a year ago. I don't know what I said. I don't remember it all, but I'm going to name a couple of people. Actually, one's in common with the prior podcast that Ray Redacted had, but uh, Matthew Green is a cryptographer that I follow, and he's actually been talking a lot how a Google Chrome browser is kind of like crossing weird privacy lines right now. That's what he's been recently talking about, and I feel like he's still right on about that. So Ooh, I, um, I see another guest for Crypto 101. Uh, he'd be an awesome person to have on if you can get him, yeah. And then um, I also really like following Chris DeRose. He's a guy who does podcasts and stuff like that, but he has actually been getting blocked by a lot of the Bitcoin core people lately because he's been kind of arguing over what is Bitcoin and is it how decentralized is it and things. Really interesting questions, philosophical things to think about. Uh, so those are the two that I recently have been really excited about. What's your opinion about Bitcoin and their decentralization or centralization? And why don't you link that to security? So I think there's a lot of different ways that something can be decentralized or centralized. And even in the case of Bitcoin, I think it ends up being more centralized than we realize. So we have one development core team that kind of puts out the software. Christopher Rose often calls it the immaculate binary, actually, kind of 
poking fun at it because it seems like, you know, people think it's magical or something. But uh, in general, I think that all these cryptocurrencies end up being a lot more centralized than we realize because of coin concentrations and mining concentration like we're seeing in China with Bitcoin. There's all these different reasons. And I think uh, basically proof of work, which is the underlying technology there, isn't quite as successful as we hoped it would be in some ways. Right on, man. So again, your opinion, though. Do you think that it's decentralized or too centralized? And what's your opinion? Do you think that we need to just take Bitmain and throw them in a river? And No, I, I don't think we need to take Bitmain and throw them in a river. I think if Bitmain is able to gain control of a majority of the hashing power of the network, then that says a lot about proof of work. And we oh, need to probably reconsider that technology as a whole, because if it over the long term doesn't create decentralization, then it's a failure. Interesting. So, That's a good way to put it, uh, yeah kind of on the fence around proof of work right now actually is where i'm at I, i'm not sure bitcoin is really the best so interesting so you're more proof of stake then or is there other ideas coming out that you are attaching yourself more to uh i wouldn't say proof of stake is better bitcoin created the idea that such a thing as decentralized money could even exist in a lot of ways and i'm not saying that proof of stake is better i'm saying maybe neither of them work all that well and there doesn't have to be a, an alternative that works all that well. Maybe we were wrong about thinking that there is one. I'm really not sure right now. We, I think we have to wait a few years and see. Man, that's really interesting that you, you bring that up because through proof of work, through proof of stake, through masternodes, through all of this, it seems as though the strong or the rich always get richer. So it doesn't seem that we're protecting the average people or the society in general. It just seems like we've made a system that rewards the powerful the rich and you want to struggle and work your way to become that to have that power yeah and i think we've seen this play out in governments already so you know if you go over history what it ends up being is that power centralizes over time mm. and we've seen that and we have to police that essentially when you look at even capitalist markets and things like that we have to outlaw monopolies and that kind of thing. So I'm wondering if this is a point where everyone's afraid because they want this to be a, a you know a crypto economic system where there's no human intervention. But maybe these systems just aren't going to work as well as we thought over the long term. Big question for me is how long is Bitcoin going to run before it breaks down? Mm -hmm. We don't know right now. How long is a proof of stake system going to run before it breaks down? Maybe in a hundred years we'll have some concept of that, you know. But right now we don't. So continuing with that conversation, do you think that we can make a system where everybody's say mining or staking and rewarded and treated fairly, where we create an algorithm that doesn't centralize or doesn't reward based off of, I don't know, hashing power or holdings or, or what have you. Would, would, would people actually want to participate in that system? I don't think we can do it without strong identity because strong identity is the only way for us to know what is one person. The internet's constantly fighting this battle over what is a human? You know, you look at Google, they're like, oh, show us the picture that has cars in it, you know, or whatever. They're always trying to figure out if you're human. And cryptocurrency networks have the same problem. As much as Satoshi's effort was one CPU, one vote. Hey, if you have a computer, then you're human, I guess, you know, kind of. And that's kind of fair. But it's not that fair, you know, as we're finding. It's not fair at all now with ASICs and stuff like that. So most people generally didn't have a lot of computers that could hash on Bitcoin's network originally. But now, I mean, now that people know there's money in it too, it's really centralized in a lot of ways. So it's different. I don't think that there is a way to do it purely just with numbers online. I think it has to cross over to strong identity. Otherwise, it's not going to be a one-to-one -one fairness because the network's not going to have a way to identify unique individuals. 
So be monetarily fair, you need to have identity and the anonymity of it just goes away. And then to maintain the anonymity that we love about Bitcoin and blockchain and crypto and all that stuff, well, then we just have to deal with these unfair systems. Is that what we're saying? I kind of think so just because if you can't prove that I'm one person and I'm not duplicating myself on the network, which is the Sybil attack concept, mm. then you know, how do I make sure everyone's getting a fair vote if I don't know if one person's pretending to be five people? And that's basically what hashing does. If you have five computers originally on the Bitcoin network, you got five times as much power as somebody had one computer. Proof of stake, if I have 100 coins and you have one coin, I get 100 times more power on the network than you. You know, so again, we just have to know who humans are on the network. And then we, if we can count them, then we can figure things out. But there's no way to do that really for a computer right now. Back to our lighter questions. <laughs> who, who do you follow to get the what's shaking in general? If you're going to follow somebody on Twitter just to get the goss in the space, who would you follow? Who are you following? Let's see. I'm trying to think who I would follow just to get the what's shaking. Um, I'll mention one person who I really like following in general, and that is so one of our advisors, his name is Terrence Yang, and he has a Twitter handle, which is Yang Ventures. He's pretty connected in the space. He has a lot of funny things to say about like Bitcoin maximalism, which I think he kind of, you know, is pro in some ways, but like he says some interesting things about like, you know, have you noticed this crossover where people are really into Bitcoin or into eating carnivore food and stuff like that? Like, have you heard about this? I don't understand. What do you mean? Carnivore food? There's a whole bunch of people who are Bitcoin maximalists, which means they believe that Bitcoin is like the only true cryptocurrency. Right. They also only eat meat. Literally. They're carnivores. There's. I'm surprised you haven't heard about this. No, it's man. All, they, they have these like steak dinner meetings and stuff. And I, I don't know. I, maybe I mean, I, I've, I've, I've definitely noticed that on crypto Twitter, but I didn't know <laughs> that was a thing. I thought it was just they, they I was kind of linking it to like the poor man's Lambo. It's like they can't drive the Lambo, but they could buy the steak and show everybody that they could buy the steak <laughs> dinner. I don't know. No, it's like related to this movement where they believe that like all the studies around vegetarianism are bad and stuff. Like I, I'm if someone was listening to this and they're one of those people, they're like, he doesn't know what he's talking about because I don't. But. I don't know. They just believe that it's okay if you just eat meat all the time, basically. Okay. It's somehow connected to Bitcoin. I don't know. All right. Well, if this is a thing and somebody that does this is listening to this, please come on the show because I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> I want to understand the philosophy behind this. I want to listen to that podcast. <laughs> if this was the first podcast someone was listening to, and now we definitely didn't do a 101 per se. We did a 101, 102, 201 bridge here on this podcast. But what would you tell them? So I'm not into the whole do your own research thing. I am in the sense that I'm not telling Whoa, you not stop, to do Stop. You have to qualify that a little bit. Please qualify. You're not into do your own research because this is the first time in the show I've ever heard that. Right. I'm not telling you don't do your own research, but I don't <laughs> think that's enough. I guess is what I was going to say. Okay, do your own like, research damn. is not enough. I think beyond doing your own research, think about risk, I think is really important. And I wish I had told people this even a year ago. But, you know, in general, risk is something that you have to manage with cryptocurrency. And even as someone who like read all the code of the uh, wallet before I used it, Every day when I have to touch a large amount of my cryptocurrency, if I have to do something like that, like it's terrifying. And I think it is for all of us because we know that there's no one we can call if something goes wrong. And so you shouldn't put more at risk because even if you do everything right, something can go wrong with a bug in the code that you hit that's like some kind of edge case or whatever. Your computer could be hacked. You don't know it. And basically you could lose all your money. 
So I would just say be very careful about how much you're willing to risk in general in, in the cryptocurrency space. Also do your own research, but it's just not enough. All right, cool, cool. Thank you for clarifying that. I was like, whoa, go in half cocked. <laughs> Dan Rice, advice to noobs, go in half cocked, throw a thousand bucks in there and see what happens. Uh, right on. <laughs> Dan, thank you very much for spending some time with Crypto 101. Thank you for coming back on the show. And congratulations to you and Amy and Sagewise for one, having a good year, two, keep you know, moving on and, you know, pounding the pavement and working on apps and, and, you know, coding and reading things that you guys read and doing the things that you guys do and thinking about the user, user experience because you're only benefiting me because I don't know anything that you're doing. But one day I'm going to be holding your guys's products, your softwares, and it's going to be nice and it's going to work. And I'm going to say thank you very much. Right on. Well, I also appreciate your work, obviously. And uh, educating people coming into the space is one of the most important things to do. And next time we have a big uptick in the market, we're going to have a surge of people coming in. There's going to be all this great content for them to listen to. So that's awesome. Right on, man. Thank you very much. Before we get off, it's been a year. What three new songs would you like on the Crypto 101 Spotify playlist? All right. I've got Queen, Don't Stop Me Now. All right. Got Zed and matthew comma and miriam bryant there's a song called find you all right and laszlo supernova boom three new songs from dan rice dan thanks a lot man thanks for coming on and we will talk to you hopefully within the year right on thank you matthew awesome Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Crypto 101. And Dan, thank you for coming back on the show. I can't believe it's been a year. And I am finding out that it's one of the amazing things that I'm yet to discover is getting people back on the show to figure out what's been going on in the space from their point of view, from tech to investment to philosophies. We get to rediscover and learn as the space grows. So I'm looking forward to reaching out to some old friends, have them back on the show to see where cryptocurrency, blockchain, crypto security, and digital assets have progressed and where they're going. In our next episode, we have on Mr. Aaron Paul of ICO 101. He sits down with me and Mr. Jake Ryan to wrap out about all things crypto. It's basically a roundtable discussion about things that we love, things that we hate, and just let some feelings out about the crypto space. We'll see you in the next episode of Crypto 101. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.